All right. We may have a few more trickle in, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started this morning with a word of prayer. Dear Lord God, I thank you for this morning that we can come and we can uh, celebrate your goodness to us, that we can come in the midst of whatever is going on in our personal lives, and we can share it together. Um, I thank you that we can do that because of you, because of the great way that you work, the, the plan that you have for not just our lives as individuals, but our lives as a whole, as a body together. Um, we have comfort, we have joy, we have peace, because we are, um, we are yours. So we thank you, God, that, um, that your plan is exactly how it is, even if it sometimes hurts, even if it doesn't make sense to us all the time, God. And, and we're glad that we can, uh, can look and see that you suffer as well. That sounds weird, but just to know, God, that, that we're comforted by the fact that we're not alone and you're not a God that is far off. But you care about our needs immensely because you yourself have experienced every human need there is. So we, we pray today as we look at, at your suffering that uh, we would learn a lot, that uh, you would bless the words that come out of my mouth, that uh, nothing untrue would be said. Um, and we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Hey, good morning, guys. So let's talk for a minute about the last couple of weeks. Last week, what did Johnny talk about? He talked about the sovereignty of God. Easy topic, right? <laughs> um, so here are a few helpful points to think about when we discuss God's sovereignty in light of evil in the world. God's plan works through our choices, not around or despite them. Our choices have consequences, and we are never forced by God to do anything. So we always do what we most want to do, right? And God amazingly works out His will perfectly through our willing actions. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. And then jump back to a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the problem of evil. We discussed a skeptic's argument that an all-good and all-powerful God either could not or would not allow evil to exist and to continue. And I gave a few examples that we might use in our defense of the skeptic's claim. So let me just run over those quickly. Um, one is that it may be that you have a strong desire for something and you're able to obtain the thing, but you choose not to act on this desire. Got it, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Because you have reasons for not doing so that seem to you to outweigh the desirability of the thing itself. So, God might also have reasons for allowing evil to exist that in his mind outweigh the desirability of the non-existence of evil. However much that may be confusing to us, it actually matches the way that we act in our lives. I also said that we often inflict pain on people for their own good. Uh, gave the example of a doctor's necessary but painful treatment of a patient or even a parent's punishment of their child. That child sure feels like it's a mean thing, a bad thing, and it hurts. Uh, but it's ultimately for their own good. 
And I said that a God who is infinitely more powerful than us would also be infinitely more knowledgeable than us, right? So why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you and I can't think of? So we didn't try to give a full justification for God's use and allowance of evil. But we did give a defense. And again, that puts the uh, burden of proof on the skeptic and takes it off of us. So we, we discussed how a sovereign, all-good, all-powerful, loving God could in fact have reasons for allowing evil, pain, and suffering that are far outside the scope of human understanding. We saw that it's impossible to prove that God could not be justified in his actions. So the skeptic will try to prove that God cannot be justified. Uh, but, but I believe it's impossible to do that ultimately. And the defense, as much as anything, is meant to show that the skeptic's arguments just don't hold water. As C.S. Lewis and others have done so well, we can give lots of good arguments uh, that help us to begin to understand why certain types of pain and suffering might exist, and that even point us to the necessity of the existence of God uh, if we're going to actually call evil what it is, evil. Otherwise, we have no foundation for what is right or wrong, what is good or evil. With all that in mind, over the last two weeks, what we've talked about, now we're going to move on from here with the assumption that God is sovereign, okay? We've been kind of talking about whether or not he is. Now we're going to assume that he is in the rest of what we talk about. We're going to assume that he's all good and he's all powerful, as the skeptic's argument assumes anyway. And we're going to assume that he allows suffering to be in the world because we know that he does. It's here. We see it every day. And importantly, we will assume that if God is all-powerful, he could have morally sufficient reasons to justify his allowance of suffering. Today we're going to talk specifically about the suffering of God himself. It's such an important topic in understanding what suffering is and how suffering really relates to us and our good. You'll see there on your paper, I've got a quote from Tim Keller. He says, God is sovereign over suffering, and yet, in teaching unique to the Christian faith among the major religions, God also made himself vulnerable and subject to suffering. The other side of the sovereignty of God is the suffering of God himself. Holding both of these together, as paradoxical as they seem at first, is crucial to grasping the unique Christian understanding of suffering. Now, if we just take the things that we talked about in previous weeks, especially the arguments I just talked about, apart from the suffering of God, is there any real benefit to me as a Christian? Is there any real comfort there in simply knowing God is in control and perhaps that he is justified in allowing suffering? I actually don't find any myself. But incredibly, God chooses a way that no human would have thought to write into the story. And his way is so much more fulfilling than anything that I could have thought of. In fact, I would say that the main reason that Christians insist that God can be trusted in the midst of suffering 
is that God himself has firsthand experience of suffering. And here's what, where we come to what Keller calls the counterweight and the complement to the teaching that God is sovereign and uses suffering as part of his often inscrutable purposes or his purposes that we can't comprehend, we can't understand. So I decided I'd throw in a little graphic to make it more exciting today on your paper. <laughs> um, just showing the idea that if God is sovereign and God is suffering, th- this has a, uh, an incredible balancing effect in the, the mind and in the soul of a Christian. Um, if God were just sovereign but not suffering, it'd be hard to really relate to God. But because God suffers, we have a special, unique relation to our Creator. Keller says then, yes, He is Lord of history on this one side, but He's also the vulnerable one who entered that history and became subject to its darkest forces. And again, yes, God often seems to be absent, as we've talked about. Even David in the Psalms uh, mentions this regularly. God, you seem absent. Uh, But Jesus himself experienced the searing pain of that absence when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, God is king. But is a king who came to earth and went not to a throne, but to a cross? He's not the king we expect, is he? Yes, God is glorious. But there is no greater glory than this, that he laid his glory and power aside and became weak and mortal. So we see this, this counterbalance of the two things, of God's sovereignty, of perhaps what we expect of him is to just show his sovereignty uh, in a mighty way, in a powerful way. But instead, he shows it by being weak and uh, allowing himself to suffer and to be um, within our human experience. The idea of suffering of God, I would say, gives us comfort in our own suffering. I know it has in my own personal life. The fact that God in his great love chooses to suffer with us can be immensely comforting. It shows us he's not far off and he's near to us and is with us in the furnace. Remember the first week I talked about some of the things that I struggled with in my own Christian life, uh, some of the attributes of God. uh, And and one of those was whether or not he was actually a comforter because I'd never felt it uh, because I'd never really had to be comforted in my life. Um, I had no proof until he proved it to me. And he showed me that he was near to me. He drew near to me and has drawn near to me in, in the absolute hardest times of my life. So when you think of the suffering of God, what comes to mind? The cross, absolutely. Any other thoughts on just what comes to mind first when you think of the suffering of God? The fall? Certainly the reason for the suffering. Yes, Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had total relationship. He had everything that he completely needed. He was completely satisfied. Mm-hmm. But then when he saw the suffering of man, he entered into that in every way. Yeah. So not, I mean, just the humility of being man. Yeah. You know, I mean, just, right, just got right there, got dirty, got right in the middle of it. Yeah. So he, he gave up all the comfort, all the 
the perfect happiness and joy to deal with the junk that we deal with, right? Mm. Yeah, that's insightful because I think we often don't think to the Old Testament when we think of the suffering of God. In the life of Jesus, we, we see him weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, mm-hmm. Jerusalem. I, why would you not repent and come to me? And, yeah. and for Lazarus' grave, Jesus wept, mm-hmm. seeing the devastation of the curse on all yeah. creation. So we see Jesus, of course, uh, dealing with sorrow uh, over a lot of things, individuals, relationships, but but over Israel as well. These are his people. Why don't you come to me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at what I as God have done for you. Um, there there would be a lot of sorrow there. Um, so obviously we, we start with Jesus in this answer when we look at the suffering of God. Um, but I think often we don't we don't look at the full picture of God's suffering. And, and Dr. Hood, I'm, I'm glad you... Glad you brought that up, because God's suffering is not just limited to Jesus. It's so important in understanding who God is to see that his suffering is woven all throughout his story, beginning in Genesis. God didn't at some point just all of a sudden begin suffering to fix things. From the very moment that man sinned, God suffered. And let's talk about that. I think normally we think of Jesus and we think about what his rejection by men. We think about him enduring false accusations, standing silently in front of a court that he knows is full of lies and and hatred. We think of his physical pain. Of course, we think specifically of the cross that he endured for us and of his death. And, And I'd say the cross and death are the apex or the pinnacle of God's suffering. They're the ultimate example of his suffering. And apart from the cross... His suffering wouldn't really be comforting to us because there would be no redemption. We wouldn't have salvation in him. But I want us to look and see also that God's suffering is not limited to just the final days of Jesus' earthly life. It's not limited even to all of Jesus' earthly life. I believe it's really important in understanding who God is, again, to see that he has woven his suffering along with man's throughout all of history. In fact, the suffering of God is indicated in the Hebrew Scriptures long before Jesus comes into the world. The Old Testament shows us a God who so deliberately set his heart upon his people that the condition of his people affects him. That's an interesting thought. We're talking about a sovereign God. He's in control. Nothing phases him. Nothing uh, can go against his will. Yet... He is affected by our condition. In the book of Jeremiah, God speaks of Israel as Ephraim and says, Is not Ephraim, my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him. Jeremiah thirty-one twenty. In a famous outburst in Hosea, uh, Hosea 11, God cries, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again 
destroy Ephraim. And another striking example of the same theme is in Genesis 6, 5 and 6. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. This language is strong. <laughs> strong language about the, the idea of kind of an inner turmoil in God. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says that these are the boldest terms counterpoised elsewhere in the Bible, if need be, but not weakened. What he means is that these passages of the Bible must be put alongside those that talk of God's omnipotence, sovereignty, holiness, absolute self-sufficiency, infinity, and eternal nature. Put another way... God depends on no one and nothing, but everything depends on him. God does not need our love and worship. He needs nothing to complete himself as we do. We must not look at these passages that talk of God's emotions and grief without seeing what the rest of the Bible says. Otherwise, we might come up with a God is halting, ever-changing, in process of growth, or needing our love. So that's the thing, when you start to read these Strong descriptions of how God reacts to what his people do or to the sin in the world. It's easy to get a picture of a God who is actually changed by what we do. As if God could be changing. But the thing is, we, we don't need to go to the other extreme either. Theologians sometimes have spoken of the impassibility of God. Namely, that God could not be capable of emotions or you know of either joy and pleasure or pain and grief but this goes beyond the language and teaching of the scripture we must not downplay the poignancy of what is said in passages like we read in Hosea 11 and Genesis 6 Kidner there in his book Genesis talks about this he says the word grieved in Genesis 6 6 is akin to the sorrow and pain inflicted on human beings for their sin in Genesis 3:16 and 17. Um, already God suffers on man's account. So we see that God the Father experiences pain and suffers according to the Old Testament. I suppose if we believe in a singular narrative from Genesis to Revelation about God as we do as a church about a God who is unchanging, then this shouldn't surprise us, right? But still, I think we almost always think only of Jesus' pain and sorrow when the idea of God's suffering is brought up. And these passages don't even begin to touch on the fact that God always knew he would have to forsake his son, his only son, to be silent when his son cried out for him and to watch him die, knowing he had the ability to do something about it. Again, we talk about the desirability to, to do something or to act on something, but you have a desirability that's greater because of a knowledge you have outside of that thing. Um, that is a, a defense against the skeptic's argument. And God proves it out here in the way that he allows the suffering, not just of humans, but of his own son. So, 
So still God knew his reasons that outweigh the desirability of saving Jesus' life. And those reasons are you and me. So on that note, let's turn away from the suffering of God the Father and look at the suffering of God the Son. So how did Jesus suffer? You've mentioned a few things. There's more, too. Can you think of any other ways, perhaps, that Jesus suffered? And you can cheat if you want. Probably not a lot. <laughs> I like I like that you word, use the word daily when you talk about did he have a bed to sleep in, because um, it's easy to think of Jesus as just this great figure who suffered in great ways, but he suffered in every tiny, minute way that we suffer. He had the the physical pains of daily life. He had hurt by people apart from the. Absolute rejection he suffered. You know, he dealt with siblings. He dealt with parents. He dealt with scraped knees and all the other junk that comes along with being human. So, Scripture certainly tells us that that Jesus dealt with ordinary pressures. Now, we don't get the narrative of his childhood or other things very, you know, in very much detail. But we do hear uh, about physical needs about Jesus' weariness and his thirst, um, just pointing us to the fact that Jesus had all the same physical needs that we have, and so he experienced all the same stuff that we do. And uh, Steve, uh, a minute ago you touched on on the grief of Jesus. Gosh, it's all throughout, <laughs> all throughout Scripture. Um, I have a couple of passages listed for you there. Mark 3, 5, John eleven thirty five and twelve twenty seven, among many others. The talk of Jesus' distress and his grief and being troubled in heart, even apart from, you know, the, the grief he experienced in the garden as he prayed uh, before he died. Um, we know that, that he would weep at, at the death of a friend, even though he knew the ultimate outcome, because he was experiencing the very real human side of grief that is, is it's just so strong that even Jesus as human couldn't ignore it. Hebrews 5, 7, Luke twenty two forty four 44, talk about Jesus' loud cries and tears. Again, in the garden, we see that he was so distressed that he basically sweated drops of blood Think about the point you'd have to be at to experience something like that. We see that Jesus, of course, suffered rejection in many ways. He was misunderstood by people, all the people who he loved and cared about. He was rejected by his family in his hometown. Yeah. Um, those of us who have like siblings who are not believers. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That is just, you know, because you're supposed to have such an intimate connection with your brothers and sisters who know you really well. And so when they reject you or think that they just kind of mock you in that way, mm-hmm. it's so hard. So I can imagine Jesus having multiple siblings and living with them. Yeah. Or, you know, just it being so painful. Yeah. Yeah, it's the idea of, of your siblings rejecting you 
course, we deal with it in small ways, all of us with our siblings, but, but it's kind of an ultimate rejection, um, a rejection of all that you say is truly important. Um, and when you use the word mock, that is the hardest thing. It's not only what you think is important is not important. It's what you think is important is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And it does create a real barrier. And surely Jesus does experience some of that. Um, he, he certainly does in, in many relationships. I wish I knew more about his sibling relationships. I think that would be quite an interesting thing to, to learn about. <laughs> to have to leave that to come here, that to me, that's such a tremendous Yeah, to, to leave the beauty of heaven, the, the perfection of heaven, to come to the cesspool of earth. <laughs> it's a good picture uh, to kind of uh, contrast the two. Certainly that is suffering. Um, yes. Absolutely. Jesus was betrayed completely, utterly. Is as large a betrayal as the world has ever seen. Um, Jesus was, he suffered through temptation. You think of the, the temptation of Satan in the, the wilderness. How hard must that have been physically, emotionally, the desire for what he knew he already had been promised by the Father, but the, the idea of maybe I could just have it now and not go through all the mess? You know, even if he knew that's not true, not right. I'm not saying that Jesus in any way, you know, fell into that temptation, but the idea that that temptation itself was so great and so strong. And uh, it says that he was tempted and assaulted by the devil. Um, I don't think we often think of our temptation that way, that we're being assaulted by the devil, but perhaps we should. <clears throat> interesting thing is uh, Hebrews 5.8 teaches us that Jesus learned from what he suffered. That's an interesting thought, that God could learn. Well, Don Carlson concludes, the God on whom we rely knows what suffering is all about, not merely in the way that God knows everything, because Jesus as God already knows everything. But... He does it by experience. Experience is only something you can have if you have experience. I don't know how else to say it, but, but God could know what experience could be like just by knowing it, but he just went through it. He experienced it in the same way that we do. So he learned it in the same way that we do. Um, let's talk for a minute because this is obviously... The, as I said, kind of the apex, the culmination of God's suffering in the passion. So the passion is literally the sufferings of Jesus. Um, I have a few points there of things that happened to him. There's actually quite a bit more. Uh, and there's a really great book that Ryan loaned to me um, called The Cross He Bore by Frederick, I guess that's Leahy. And uh, I'll read a quote from it in a minute. But it really is 
it's a short book, but it's meditations on the sufferings of Christ throughout the Passion. And it helps you, I think, to get kind of in the mindset of, of based on all the cultural things that were happening, um, as well as Jesus' connection to the Father. Um, it helps you to understand perhaps better how great the suffering of Jesus was um, in, in all that he went through. Let's talk about a few of those things. Matthew twenty two forty four we've touched on already says, being in agony in the garden, his sweat became like great drops of blood. There in Matthew also, in Luke and Mark and John, we see he was humiliated and mocked. So we come back to the idea of, I can't think of many things that hurt worse, even than physical pain, being humiliated in front of people, being mocked, especially when you've done nothing wrong, especially when the ones who are mocking you and humiliating you are ones that you love. It's different if perhaps it's a complete stranger. And, and there were many strangers there, of course, but there are no strangers to Jesus <laughs> because he created all of them. These are his creation, and his creation is looking at him and, and saying unreal things about him treating him in a way that you would not treat your worst enemy. In John, we look at how he was whipped and beaten. And the physical punishment of that would have been horrendous, I'm sure. I have no no way to even begin to judge what that would be like. But again, I think even stronger than the physical pain of any of it is the betrayal, the denial Uh, from those that he loved. And then the worst of all of it had to be being forsaken by his father on the cross. Jesus had for all eternity, before time, been utterly connected with his father. Jesus, the father, the the Holy Spirit, they are relationship. This is what they have always had. We've talked about it a lot in our church about, uh, and I've mentioned it a few weeks ago, um, Keller's picture of the dance of the Trinity. Before anything existed, what was happening? God the Father, His Son, and the Spirit were moving outside of themselves into the other, always being in relationship, always caring for another. This is what they had, certainly of what we can describe of what they had, because we don't know other than that. And in this moment, Jesus, for the first time ever, was utterly forsaken by his father. It hurts a lot with a human father. But to be forsaken, torn apart from part of yourself. I don't know how else to describe it. Then they were so completely connected and then so completely ripped apart in that moment. Frederick Leahy, who I mentioned, he says, The darkness that enveloped the Savior at Calvary was clearly a visible expression of the inner darkness that wrung that dread cry of dereliction from his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be forsaken by God is hell. This was the moment when the prophecy of Daniel 9.26 was fulfilled. 
An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So we talk of what Jesus had in heaven. He had everything. He lacked nothing. And here he is willingly sent by his father and willingly going to the cross to have nothing. There is no greater disparity between two two uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Two experiences than that. Going from having everything to willingly having nothing and dealing with the fact that your father has called you to do it. Dan McCartney writes, Christ learned humanhood from his suffering. Again, that's coming from Hebrews 5.8. And therefore, the inverse, we learn Christhood from our suffering. This is in his book, Why Does It Have to Hurt? The Meaning of Christian Suffering. Um, I think it's such an interesting picture because we start to see how the suffering of Christ and our suffering as Paul talks about, truly brings us together. We suffer with him, and he suffers with us. Both are said in Scripture. And the idea that he learns humanhood, for lack of better words, and we learn Christhood from suffering. It is the unique connection that brings humans and their God together. Keller says we can easily see why children need to trust their parents I need water. Uh, Trust their parents, even when they do not understand them. How much more then should we trust God, even though we do not understand him? It's not just the differential in wisdom between him and us is infinitely greater than the difference between a child and a parent. It is not just that he is sovereign and all powerful. We should also trust him because he earned our trust on the cross. So we can trust him even when he hasn't shown us yet the reason why. That's got to be the hardest thing as a parent, is to teach your child to trust you without understanding why. There are complex things that we know as a parent that we can't begin to explain to our kids. Right, Elliot? (laughs) Um, But we can trust him even when he hasn't shown us yet the reason why. Because he is good for it. And you could say that God has proven it over and over and over and over again. This is what his constant narrative of his suffering throughout Scripture is about. It's about him proving himself over and over and over again, even though he doesn't need to. He shouldn't need to prove himself. But he has chosen to. He has chosen to do it constantly. He is faithful always to prove himself. Yes. I was just uh, thinking the one thing that we don't have in common is Christ's suffering. Is we are never uh, separated from God, even though at times it feels like it. He said he'd never leave us nor forsake us. And in the midst of our sufferings, he's also immensely blessing us, yet we don't see it. Absolutely. Right. So there is a, a big difference in the way that we suffer. Um, that is a big part of why we have comfort in Christ's suffering. We know that he was willing to be forsaken so that we would not have to be forsaken. Um, and so there's that counterweight again. Then we'll talk about it in, in a moment that, that the 
uh, suffering leads to glory. But in this case, the suffering is leading to our glory. Scott. Another difference. Um, I mean, Christ never did anything to deserve suffering. Right. But we, we have and we do. You have? <laughs> I mean, some people do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. There you go. I was waiting for that. Yeah, Lily. Well, yeah, that's that's an excellent point. Well, that's a good one to add in. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a good one for trusting him. Um, let's see where we are. I want to keep on pace here. No, that's okay, Mom. <laughs> so let's let's talk about quickly the final defeat of evil because I think that's important in looking at the suffering of God um, and, and where we're at here. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It's a tough question that Habakkuk is asking God. And in the Psalms, we see these questions regularly, the, the how long questions. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And I listed a few more there for your own reading if you'd like. Do you believe there's an answer to these questions that is sufficient? Is Christ's suffering enough for you? The suffering of our God and the fact that he is affected by our suffering is certainly a comfort. But again, since God tends to work in very full and complete ways, that is not all we're left with, even though that would be great. So that's not all we're given in Scripture. Here's a few more things that we see that will happen. Evil has become its own downfall in the cross. That's a picture we see regularly that God himself and his responses to the prophets brings up that ultimately the evil man brings evil upon himself or brings his own downfall. Um, what he thinks is great as he sins now ultimately will be the thing that curses him. And the greatest sin ever committed, the murder of the Savior of the world, is the exact thing that wiped out all of sin. And that's an amazing thought. This is one of my favorites in all of Scripture. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He mocks those who plot against him. We look back to Habakkuk. He had his questions and God's answer was ultimately, yes, I will use evil, these evil men for my purposes. But they're laughing now because they think they're great. Just wait. He says, woe to the Chaldeans. He says, they're going to get theirs. And I don't think that we need to live in the light of, oh, I sure hope all these evil people, you know, they, they get theirs. But the idea that God sits in the heavens and it says he holds the nations in derision. He, he mocks them because any, any person, any people group, he could flick off the map with a flick of his finger. They, they think they're high and mighty, but they're, they're nothing when compared to God and his will, his plan, and his purpose. So there will be a final judgment. 
the injustices of this present age will finally be dealt with. The coming of Jesus Christ, this is a comfort, will bring the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of heaven and earth. All of the evil, pain, and suffering of this life will be as nothing when compared with the eternity that God has promised us. And here's an important thought that I think we need to rest in. Christianity doesn't offer a full explanation for evil now, but will offer a final, utterly satisfying answer one day. The theologian Louis Burkhoff writes, The Bible teaches us to look forward to a final judgment as the decisive answer of God to all such questions, as the solution of all such problems, and as a removal of all the apparent discrepancies of the present. But the Bible doesn't merely tell us that evil is punished, as important as that is. In our world, sometimes evildoers are caught and brought to justice. But while we, as humans, can punish evil, we cannot undo evil. Imprisoning or executing murderers, for example, cannot bring back the dead they killed or repair the lives they've ruined. But the book of Revelation promises much more than a judgment day, right? Burkhoff tells us that judgment day is accompanied by the coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the renewal of heaven and earth. And we talked about already about um, what God or what Scripture says about God's response to those that are puffed up and proud in their sin. Um, it's not our place to worry about that, for one thing, um, because God has it handled already. So again, God says that those will get what is coming to them in his own timing. And because God is truly sovereign and he knows what is coming and he's planned what is coming, he knows that nothing and no one can get in the way of his will and his timing. And he knows how utterly and completely evil will be both destroyed and undone. And he can laugh at the childish and ignorant bragging and boasting of the evil man. So that's, that's, that's why God can laugh. Because he has the full picture. And he has created the full picture himself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on here. There's a, you can read there later. Habakkuk has a really great psalm at the end of, of the book in response to what God has told him. Even though it perhaps didn't, he didn't respond the way he would have liked. He, he falls and worships and praises him. And one thought I want to give real quickly. This, there's a really great song by Andrew Peterson. Uh, called Lay Me Down, where he uses an image that's really stuck with me. Um, He says, all of the death that ever was, if you set it next to life, I believe it would barely fill a cup. So the idea that what is promised to come is so great, so wonderful, so massive, so filling of the earth, that all this bad stuff that we're experiencing that is so big to us now will be as if nothing. It's impossible to understand now, but I believe that this final answer will come in the day of Jesus' return. And we will feel the satisfaction that Christ has for us there. I want to talk for just a moment about the reasons for suffering. I really wanted to focus on God's suffering today because I think it's so crucial. Um, And I've given you stuff you can read over here for the reasons of suffering. Um, But quickly... We don't want to waste our suffering. <laughs> and there are certainly things that we benefit from in suffering. Practical things and spiritual things. Um, the idea that <clears throat> people who endure and get through suffering 
often become more resilient. It's a very, there's a very worldly thought in that sometimes, just what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But there's some actual truth that it, it, it actually does help you. Um, but there's a very spiritual side to that. As Romans 5, 3, and 4 says, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this is immensely practical, but very spiritual as well. Suffering often strengthens relationships. Now, I know that each of you have probably seen instances where suffering breaks apart relationships, because that happens as well. But when one is, is in God and being comforted by God, Suffering often strengthens relationships. So <clears throat> a bonding, um, or, or it, it bonds the sufferers permanently often in a deeper relationship. And I've seen this in my life with, with ones that I love and care about. Suffering also changes priorities and philosophies. People who invest most of their energy into the goals of personal achievement and happiness are often the most vulnerable, vulnerable to the adverse circumstances of life. Efforts to seek God, deeper relationships, and the good of society sometimes can be directly enhanced by suffering. But our, <clears throat> our freedom and comforts are never enhanced by suffering. And that's good to remember because when all I'm seeking is my freedom and comfort, when I suffer, it's not going to get better. I'm not going to find more physical freedom and comfort, my personal happiness apart from God. Those things are not going to be enhanced by suffering. And so troubles and trials tend to force us out of certain life agendas and into others. It forces us out of the seeking my happiness life agenda and into the seeking <clears throat> a deeper relationship with God, deeper relationships with others, um, where those things can actually thrive in the midst of suffering. Let me jump down <clears throat> here. Since our purpose as Christians is to glorify God, then that must mean the first and perhaps hardest to grasp goal of our suffering is to glorify God. Lots of passages there spell that out clearly. Um, I will leave you to read those yourself. But I'll say this. C.S. Lewis talks about the idea of how we um, praise a work of art, uh, a beautiful work of art. He says it demands our admiration because it is the only reasonable response. Um, if we don't respond, we'll be missing out on something. And God is the supremely beautiful an all-satisfying object who demands admiration because it's the only reasonable response. And he came to this in thinking of the idea that we don't really like people who ask for praise and adoration. He's trying to figure out how it makes sense, how we cannot hate God for asking for that. And he said ultimately he came to the fact that, that it's actually the only reasonable response whether or not he asked for it because he is the supremely beautiful and all-satisfying object. The psalmist tells us that it's fitting to praise him. It fits uh, with our reality because God's infinitely and supremely praiseworthy. Um, all the beauty we've looked for in art or faces or places and all the love we've looked for in the arms of other people is only fully present in God himself. So in every action by which we treat him as glorious as he is, whether through prayer, singing, trusting, obeying or hoping, we are at once giving God his due and fulfilling our own design. I'll let you read yourself about the God of glory and, and uh, um, not making a graven image, but um, let's talk for a moment about glorifying God to others. There are two kind of main ways that we glorify God to others, 
and then glorifying God when no one sees. Trusting God in suffering also glorifies him to others. When believers handle suffering rightly, and I know we need to go, (laughs) they are not merely glorifying God to God. They are showing the world something of the greatness of God. 1 Peter tells us this. 2 Corinthians tells us this. Um, And we look quickly at the idea of when Stephen was martyred, a young Saul of Tarsus witnessed as Stephen forgave the men and asked that Jesus not hold their sin against them even while they stoned him. And many believe that this stuck with Saul and was in fact one of the goads Jesus mentioned on the road to Damascus where Saul was converted. It affected him greatly as God was being glorified in the midst of someone's suffering. Ephesians 3.10 tells us the angels are looking at what happens inside the church. Luke 15.10 tells us that the angels rejoice over a sinner who repents. A great council of angels watches over Job in his suffering. Even when no other person sees us glorifying God in our suffering, we have a great multitude of beings watching everything we do. Scary, right? (laughs) But, but, But good as well. And they rejoice when we glorify God. So even when we think we're not seen in our suffering, no suffering is for nothing. I'm going to leave you with this. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could gain access. He was bound and nailed so we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. There's that counterbalance. His suffering brings our glory ultimately and his. But And Keller, Keller says, Jesus Christ suffered not so that we would never suffer, but so that when we suffer, we would be like him. His suffering led to glory. And you can see it in Paul. Paul is happy to be in prison because my sufferings are for your glory, he says. He's like Jesus now because that is how Jesus did it. And if you know that glory is coming you can handle suffering too. All right, let me close in prayer real fast and we'll go. Father God, we pray that you would in fact use our suffering for your glory and that you would cause us to be uh, more like you in the midst of suffering and uh, that we as a church would uh, do this together. Uh, We pray these things now in your name. Amen.